This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This episode number 44, entitled Anti-Imperial Christology in 1 Thessalonians Part 2. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. In our previous episode, we began examining within 1 Thessalonians how Paul portrayed the risen Lord Jesus Christ as a figure who subverts the Roman emperor, what I and others have described as anti-imperial Christology. It turned out that 1 Thessalonians had enough material in it to last for two episodes, so that this is the second of a two-part series. I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 43, our previous episode, if you have not yet done so. We began the last episode by asking, what sort of things did Paul need to teach his converts about faithfulness to Jesus Christ that would have been seen as offensive to their former loyalties to the Roman emperor? We observed that Paul subverted the theology of Caesar and his empire by saying that Jesus' coming will bring authentic peace and safety to the world, and that believers will go out to meet Jesus as he returns to escort him back to earth. And finally, that the peace and safety heralded as part of the gospel of Caesar was an empty claim. How else does Paul subvert Caesar with his depiction of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in First Thessalonians? Let's find out today in this episode. Our first point today is looking at the lordship of Jesus and Caesar. The lordship of Jesus and Caesar. Kyrios is the Greek word for Lord, and it appears in 1 Thessalonians 24 times, about five times per chapter. From a frequency standpoint, that is comparatively high, even for Paul's letters. As a reminder, Lord was the most common title given to the Roman emperor. Furthermore, the announcement of Jesus as king in Acts chapter 17 demonstrated that this proclamation was seen as offensive and even as treason to the rulership of Caesar. In other words, if Jesus was the Lord of the world, then Caesar isn't. So for Paul to make a major point about Jesus being the Lord, and Paul's use of Lord almost exclusively refers to Jesus rather than to God in his letters, then Paul was pointing his believers to the legitimate ruler when the culture is convinced that the legitimate ruler was Caesar. In other words, Paul's announcement of the lordship of Jesus was almost certainly intentionally subversive of the widely held assumption that Caesar is Lord. Although we do not have time to look at all 24 occurrences of the word Lord in 1 Thessalonians, some of the references seem to stand out as emphasizing Jesus as Lord in a way that would have pulled the rug out from under the claim that Caesar was Lord. Let's look at some of these references. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. 
That's 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. Paul makes the emphasis that for his readers and for Paul and his traveling companions, our Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, and our God is God the Father. Okay, The Lord is not the Lord Caesar, and God is not Caesar, nor the dead and deified former emperors. They could not claim the title as God. No, for Christians, our Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ, and our God is the Father. It's very interesting there that Paul distinguishes the two of those. Our God is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is God the Father. So it's interesting there to see how Paul emphasizes that it's not just the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our Lord, meaning that Caesar is no longer our Lord. And the Father is our God, meaning that the claims of God given to the Roman emperors was false and fake. Moving along in the first chapter, Paul continues, and he praises his readers that you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-7. through seven. Paul there emphasizes that his readers, the Thessalonians, became imitators of Paul, of Paul and his traveling companions, and they became imitators of the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was someone who was a figure that was an example for others. Jesus was someone, according to this passage, who, despite much tribulation, was someone who had joy. Jesus was someone that functioned as an example for his followers. And here Paul praises his converts as those who became imitators of Jesus as the Lord. They weren't becoming imitators of Caesar as the Lord. No, Jesus was the true Lord that could be imitated. And thus it demonstrates that the life of Jesus, the life depicted in the four Gospels, was a life that could be imitated by Paul's converts and that Paul expected Paul's converts to imitate and to have the attitude of Jesus. The same sort of theology and application is seen in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-6. through six. So that's 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6-7. through seven. Moving on to chapter 3, Paul says, Now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 8. So standing firm in the Lord is another way of saying standing firm in Christ, in the Lord, that is in the Lord Jesus, in the sphere of the Lord Jesus' redemption and the faithfulness that Jesus expected of his followers. And so... The true living, the true reality of this new life in Christ is given to those who firmly stand in the Lord. They're not wavering and giving allegiance to other lords, especially to the Lord Caesar. They are standing firm in the Lord Jesus, in the sphere of the Lord Jesus' redemptive activity. And that redemptive activity is what had turned these pagans from honoring the emperor and the imperial cult to the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul wishes with a prayer that may our God and Father himself 
and teach our Lord, direct our way to you. That's 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. There Paul makes the emphasis that it's not just the God and Father, it is our God and Father and Jesus our Lord. He's making the emphasis there that our God for Christians is the God and Father and our Lord for Christians is the Lord Jesus. God can no longer be a title given to the Roman Emperor and his deified Father and Lord is no longer a title that could be given to Caesar. Our God is God the Father for Christians, and our Lord is Jesus. And it's interesting there again that Paul distinguishes the two of those. Our God is not Jesus. Jesus is our Lord, and our God is the Father himself. Himself there being a singular pronoun, meaning that our God is a singular person. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul states that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 10. The true God has not destined believers for God's wrath, for God's judgment, but for obtaining the true salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, by the way, was something that was proclaimed in the propaganda of Caesar's gospel. Caesar's gospel announced the fact that Rome had pacified the warring tribes, has brought peace to civil war through the victory of the Lord Caesar. But here we're seeing that the true gospel announces salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true Lord who brings about the true salvation, and God has destined his people for this salvation, not for the salvation promised by Rome, and certainly not for the salvation promised by Rome's supposed Lord. This Lord, our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the one who died for us. The Roman emperor, especially the emperor Nero, who is the current reigning emperor at the writing of 1 Thessalonians, could not have said that he died for his people. And so Paul here says that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are alive or dead, we will in the future live together with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 9 through 10. There we can see that the announcement of Jesus as Lord in 1 Thessalonians was very clearly meant to subvert the claims, the theology, the propaganda, stating that Caesar was Lord. If Jesus was Lord, then Caesar was not, according to Paul. Our second point today is that God's gospel was contrary to the gospel of Caesar. We have the gospel of God and the gospel of Caesar. Evangelion, the Greek word for gospel, appears six times in 1 Thessalonians. Still comparatively high in frequency when one looks at the size of the letter as a whole. I think from a frequency standpoint, this is Paul's second most frequent letter that demonstrates the Greek word evangelion, the word gospel. So it's comparatively high. Remember that the gospel of Caesar was being heralded even before Jesus was born, announcing the victory of Rome over the warring clans and the establishment of peace and safety, resulting in faithfulness and loyalty to the emperor. 
So for Paul to suggest a new gospel message to Gentiles used to the gospel of Caesar, a gospel with a different Lord, a different Son of God, a different salvation, and a different kingdom. This would sound like treason to those loyal to Rome. So again, the announcement of God's gospel, the announcement of the Christian gospel, would have certainly been understood as offensive and even as treason to those used to the gospel of Caesar. So let's look at how this plays out in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5 says that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. Paul there is stating that our gospel didn't just come with announcement, but it was legitimate, it was authentic, it came with the power, with the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. This is something that was real. It wasn't something that was just stated out there that was trying to get people to give loyalty to Caesar, despite the fact that Rome was still warring with a variety of nations in the first century, and that a lot of people mocked the peace and safety that Rome supposedly established in this world. No, the true gospel was one that was brought with power, with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, and it was preached by authentic, godly people. Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul was trying to not only announce the gospel and its legitimacy in a world that honored the gospel of Caesar, but Paul demonstrated with his life and the life of his traveling missionary companions that they proved to be people that had been transformed by this gospel. That's 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. Moving on to chapter 2, Paul says, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2. So there we see that despite the opposition that Paul had, likely the opposition Paul had preaching this gospel in Philippi, a Roman colony that was certainly very loyal to Rome, Paul still had the boldness in our God, our God being the true God, not Caesar as God, to speak to you the gospel of God, the gospel of the true God, the true God that has raised the Lord Jesus as the true Lord of the world. And so Paul here demonstrated that he has already announced this true gospel in the midst of the opposition where this gospel would have been understood as offensive to those loyal to the gospel of Caesar. A few verses later, Paul says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Paul there demonstrates that they have been entrusted with the gospel, meaning that Paul doesn't just keep this gospel message for himself. He shares it with his followers. He shares it with those with whom he desires to convert. And God has approved this gospel and entrusted it to Paul. So this gospel has power, and God is the one that is examining the hearts 
of the evangelist to see if their intentions are true. Moving on to chapter 3, Paul states that we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. That's 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 2. Timothy here was a fellow worker of the gospel about Christ, the gospel about Christ as the king, as the Jewish messianic king that is one day going to return and consummate the true kingdom. That is certainly the contents of this gospel. Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord of the world is going to one day rule as Christ, as the anointed king of God's kingdom. And Timothy was sent about to strengthen and encourage you regarding this faith, regarding faithfulness to Jesus' gospel, to Jesus' kingdom. And if one is to be faithful to Jesus, then they can no longer demonstrate faithfulness to Caesar. You cannot have faithfulness to two lords. You cannot give loyalty to two gospels, and you certainly cannot be a citizen of two kingdoms. So that's our second point. Our third and final point is that Paul talked about turning from Caesar worship towards the true God and his son. There's a very important passage demonstrating this at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, where Paul says, They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 through 10. And boy, there's so much powerful information within this passage, these two verses. I would say that this is probably the most powerful statement within 1 Thessalonians. Paul converted the Thessalonians, and they turned to God from idols, and the God to whom they turned was the living and the true God, and someone distinct from that living and true God was his son, namely the son of the true God. That son of God is Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus is going to rescue them from the coming judgment, from the coming wrath. So note there the important shift that was towards the true God and his son, and that son is namely the son of God. Remember that God was a title for the deified former emperors who had died, and often a title for many of the living emperors. And son of God was a title given to every living emperor, since his father, the former emperor, had died and been deified into a god. So notice here the conversion from idols, from whatever the Thessalonian pagans had formerly believed, to a belief in monotheism and a belief in one true God and faithfulness to the son of that one true God, who is Jesus. So, if Paul's preaching announced the true coming, the true parousia, and if Paul depicted the role of resurrected and immortalized Christians as going out to meet the coming Lord Jesus in the air to escort him to earth, and if Paul mocked the peace and safety heralded by Rome's followers, 
And if Paul regarded Jesus as the true Lord, and if the Christian gospel upstaged the gospel of Caesar, then it seems clear that the act of turning away from idols in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10 included the turning away from participation in the imperial cult. I will say that again. The act of turning away from idols in 1 Thessalonians included the turning away from the worship of the Roman emperor. The Father is the true God, not Caesar, nor any of the former emperors. Jesus is the true Son of God, not the Emperor Nero. In other words, the conversion of pagans was a conversion towards monotheism and faithfulness to the Messiah and a conversion away from loyalty to Rome and her emperors. In conclusion, we have observed that, number one, the strong insistence within 1 Thessalonians that Jesus was the true Lord was almost certainly a reminder that Caesar's lordship was the parody to the Lord Jesus' reality. Number two, we saw that Paul notes that the announcement of the true Christian gospel was in opposition to the gospel of Caesar, as the Christological truth claims of early Christianity were offensive to those loyal to Caesar. And lastly, number three, we observed that Paul required those converting to the Christian faith to repent from participation in the worship of idols, and Caesar worship was a primary idol from which people needed to turn. If the Father was the only true God, and if Jesus was the only true God's Son, then Caesar had no right to claim these titles. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, take care.